Father, we come tonight and we ask for you to speak. We ask for you to teach us from your word. This is your word. And we know that you're faithful to your word. And we know that if we seek after you, we will find you. So I pray that you will help us to calm our minds, our hearts, open our ears. Teach us, Lord. Give us a teachable spirit. I pray that you would give me clarity of thought, clarity in my speech, and that everything tonight will be to your honor and glory. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, week three. Week three, can you believe it? We're on our way. All right, so before we get into our text for tonight, I would just want to set the stage for what's happening. So you have to keep in mind that Moses, in this book of Deuteronomy, is speaking to the second generation, the second generation of the people that had come out of Egypt. These were either under age of 20 or at the time of the Exodus, or they were born since the Exodus. So, um, and we'll talk more later about the timeline, but this is the second generation. And it gets a little confusing because Moses is talking like you, you did this and you did this. And he's actually preaching to them about their parents, their parents. He's talking about what has happened since they left Egypt. Although in our passage today, he's going to actually switch to talking directly to the second generation. We'll see that happen. And and the second generation is actually poised on the edge of the promised land when Moses began his sermon at the beginning of chapter 1. And we studied that last week. In verses 3 and 4, we read that Moses began to speak to them in the 40th year after the kings Sion and Og were defeated. And those two events, those two battles, we're going to learn about in our passage, right? We studied this week in our passage. So just setting you up there, second generation uh, is who he's actually preaching to. All right, so to set us up too, then I want to just do a brief outline on what's happened to the Israelites, okay? So way back in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abram called him out from his land, homeland, from out from his family, and he made a promise to him. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to give you a land. Now, that same promise was repeated to his son Isaac and to Isaac's son Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, as we know, uh, and a great famine had spread throughout all the land, and because of that famine, Jacob's family, along with his 12 sons and their families, ended up in Egypt. And when they went to Egypt, they went down there as 70 persons, okay? And there they experienced a lot of prosperity. The Pharaoh was kind to them because of Joseph, um, Jacob's son Joseph. And um, so they did multiply, and they became very numerous in number, But when a new king in Egypt succeeded to the throne, he enslaved the people. He made them slaves. They were oppressed, and they were afflicted, and they were under heavy, heavy burdens for 400 years. Now, they cried out to God. We read in Exodus chapter 2 
that they groan, in their groanings, they cried, save us. And God heard them, and he acts. And he raises up a leader, Moses. And through Moses, God led the people out of the land of Egypt, out of their bondage, out of their slavery. So you have to remember that the people saw with their eyes the ten plagues that God brought. They saw the sea part, and they walked with their feet on dry ground. Um, They saw the defeat of the Egyptian army. They uh, followed in the, and after they crossed the Red Sea, they were going to Mount Sinai, which in Deuteronomy is called Horeb. And um, they saw with their eyes how God led them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When they got to the mountain and God's presence descended on the mountain, there was lightning and clouds and darkness and fire. They saw this with their eyes. And they heard with their ears God speaking audibly from the mountain the Ten Commandments. We're going to learn about that later in chapter 5. But they heard him. They saw these things and they heard. And they spent about a year there around Mount Sinai. And then God told them it was time to move on. It was time to go and take possession of the land. So they left Sinai and they went northward to Kadesh Barnea. And there they thought, hmm, you know, let's send out some spies, okay? So they sent out 12 spies, one for each tribe, and 10 of them came back with this, oh, my word, there's giants in the land and the cities, oh, they're fortified all the way up to heaven. And um, we're just like grasshoppers in their sight. And, but, but yeah, it's a good land, but they're, you know, they were afraid. And then there were two men, two spies, Caleb and Joshua, and they said, yeah, it is a good land, and yeah, there might be giants, and yeah, the cities are fortified, but we have God, right? We have God. We can trust him. We can follow him. But they were like, eh, I don't think so. And the people actually listened to the 10 spies to the bad report. Moses had actually tried to convince them that they should go in anyway, but they didn't believe. They didn't believe. They rebelled. Okay, they pushed back. They were they were afraid um, that God had brought them out. Remember last um, week we studied this. Um, started in in verse twenty six. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled. This is Moses speaking about that first generation. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Those were the giants. But they didn't believe the Lord their God, and they rebelled. So as we go into our passage for um, tonight, we're going to see some contrasts that are going to develop. So at the end of last week, we saw people that were fearful. They let their fear overrule their, their, or rule their decision about whether to follow God or not, and fear of the people, and fear of the cities, and they had rebellion in their hearts. So 
Let's go on. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Deuteronomy 1, verse um, 34. Now, there's a lot of text to go through tonight, so I'm not going to read all the text. Um, but I'm, as I read, I'm going to make a lot of comments, and then there are areas that I'm going to summarize as well. So, all right, verse 34. Now, this is Moses speaking. And the Lord heard your words. So right away, we have to think, well, you know, were they, they weren't complaining to God directly. It said in verse 27 that they were murmuring in their tents. Maybe they were talking amongst themselves and really complaining. But the Lord heard their words. In Psalm 139, it says that before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. He knows. He knows even words that we don't voice out loud to someone else. He knows. He knows. The Lord heard your words and was angered. He was angered. Why was he angry? These people he had brought out with a mighty arm, mighty hand, outstretched arm, They had seen him do these works. And here he brought them to the land of promise, and all they're doing is murmuring. The Lord hated us. He's going to destroy us. He was angered, and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. All right, the word he swore is actually an oath or a promise, and it's actually in there twice, as you see at the, uh, the statement, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore that I made on oath to give to the descendants of Abraham. It's a promise. So here, that promise is going to continue, but this evil generation that have complained and rebelled against God, he's making another promise that they will not see the land. They will not see the land except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Now, Caleb was one of those 12 spies. He was one of the two that gave that good report and said, we can do it. Well, he says about Caleb, he shall see it. He shall see it. And to him and to his children, I will give the land on which he has trodden because he has wholly followed the Lord. I love that statement. I love that statement. Um, Holy followed the Lord. In Numbers 14, 24, it says, because Caleb had had a different spirit, and he has fully followed me. In the Hebrew, it would literally be translated, he completely filled himself after the Lord. He completely filled himself. Caleb was saturated with God. Don't you want that to describe you? To be fully saturated with God. All right, verse 37, even with me, Moses says, even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you shall not go in there. Very sad words for Moses to hear, right? This has been his goal all this time. You shall not go in there. Now, in our homework, we talked, we studied about when Moses had disobeyed Uh, the command of the Lord. He struck that rock that second time, and there was actually a statement in there about it because of his unbelief. Um, So this was his penalty. Now, we know that Moses did believe in God, right? We know that he believed. We know that Moses was one of the two that came down uh, from heaven to meet with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Um, But Moses did have to pay the price for letting the people influence his actions. 
And, th- and that's important for us to remember, too. All right, um, verse 38. Joshua, since Moses isn't going to go in, he's got to appoint a new leader. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. So Joshua is going to be the one to take them into the promised land. Verse 39, and as for your little ones who you said, now that's the first generation, who you said would become a prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, that statement there is actually a reference to um, being beneath the age of discernment, or today we would often say the age of accountability. Uh, But the parents, they had been using the children as their excuse in their rebellion, part of their excuse. The Amorites, they're going to chase down our children and and take them and and make them slaves or kill them. Um, Who you said would become a prey, they shall go in there. So now the they is actually the people that Moses is preaching to. So it gets a little tricky, you know, keep all your people's groups straight. They shall go in there. They are right now standing there poised to enter the promised land at the time of the sermon. And to them I will give it. And they shall possess it. So not only is Moses giving a history lesson on what has happened so far, but this actually serves too as a warning to this second generation. What are they going to do? How are they going to proceed? Are they going to obey? Are they going to rebel? We have to see. Verse 40. But as for you, first generation, but as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Now, that must have just been the most horrible words to hear. They had just come from the direction of the Red Sea through the great and terrifying wilderness, as Scripture had told us. And now he's telling them, turn around and go back. Go back. You have rebelled. You have sinned. Turn around and go back into the direction of the Red Sea. Verse 41. Then you answered me. We have sinned against the Lord. Too late. They're responding to that earlier command. Too late. This comment, we have sinned, it actually sounds like a confession. Sounds like repentance. But yet we can see in the actions that follow that it isn't a true heart repentance. We ourselves will go up and fight. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God had commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. It's like a little too late. They're realizing the enormity of the rebellion against God. And they're having confidence in themselves. They're having confidence in their own self, in their weapons, in their flesh, not, not where their confidence should be. Verse 42, And the Lord said to me, Say to them, Do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. So they rebelled at the command to go in, and now they're rebelling further against their penalty. Presumptuously. Presumptuously went up into the hill country. So this suggests an action taken with insolence. It's impertinence. It's rude. It's arrogant. It's bold. It's brazen. So they're not just rebelling. They're 
brazenly, boldly rebelling. In um, Mark Jones's book, Knowing Sin, there's a chapter on, on the sin of presumption, presumptuous sins. Uh, here's this quote. Indeed, not only was God not with them, but he was against them. If you march against the Lord, do not be surprised if he marches against you. There can only be one victor in such a battle. Only one victor. All right, verse 44, we'll see the effects of what happened. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Horma. So they were defeated. That battle, they did not win their battle. The Amorites, who they had said back in verse 27 that they were afraid they would be defeated by, by taken by. Verse 45, then you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. So this is actually a period of mourning. They're grieving. They're grieving their defeat. They're grieving their sin. They're grieving the fact that they have to turn around and go back. And so they did. They wept before the Lord, but he didn't change his mind. All right, we're going to open with chapter 2, verse 1. Then we turned. So after that period of grieving, then they turned, and they journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord had told me. And for many days, and that many days is 38 years. 38 years in two words. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough Turn northward and command the people. So we're going to stop there real quick. So it actually gets repeated a little bit later in our text. But what has happened is, you know, they came from Mount Sinai or Horeb where they had gotten the law. And they went up to Kadesh. They sent out the spies. They rebelled. Their penalty, turn around and go back. So they went back southward towards the Red Sea. They wander around there for 38 years, and now God says it's time. It's time to go back up north. But it's been 38 years, and as you know from your homework, in 38 years' time, that whole first generation did pass away. We're going to see that later in our text. All right, so turn northward, verse 4, and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land, no, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. So you read about that God allotting that land to Esau in Genesis 36. But but Esau is Jacob's brother, Jacob's twin brother. So these are relatives of the people of Israel. And so God's like, you know, he gave them this land, and this isn't for you to take. Okay, and he tells them, don't contend with them. Verse 6, you shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat. That's a necessity. And you shall buy water from them with money that you may drink. Also a necessity. They're in the desert, remember. Uh, Verse 7, for the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. Even in that great and terrifying wilderness, they didn't lack anything. These are words of comfort, 
words of encouragement that Moses is giving them. And the Lord, of course, was ready to act in the lives of his people again and again, if only they would just remain loyal to his covenant. So um, back in Numbers chapter 20 and also in 21, we read that the people of Edom, which is the people of Esau, they actually refused passage through their land. So they actually had to go around. So we do read that. So in verse 8, it makes a little more sense. So we went on away from our brothers. They weren't able to go through, but there was no war. There was no war. Um, So they went away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road, from Eloth and Ezon-Geber. All right, the rest of verse 8. And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. So Moab is named for the first incestuous son of Lot. And we read that story in Genesis chapter 19. Again, a relative. Again, God's not going to give them any of this land. And they're not to harass or contend with them. Either they're not to treat them as an enemy or show hostility. Because that land was allocated by the Lord to the descendants of Lot. Okay, we're going to skip down. Oh, those editorial comments? Weren't those fun? Um, chapter or Verses 10 through like 12, it's like editorial comments that they think really were most likely added after the death of Moses to help explain or to give more historical interest to that, to those places and names. Okay. Um, Verse 13. Verse 13. Now rise up and go over the brook Zered. So you have to think about back in chapter 1, verse 21, God had said, go up, take possession, Get up, go, and they didn't. So here, now rise up and go over the brook Zered. And so we went over the brook Zered. Aren't you glad for them? They are obedient. In verse 14, and the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Um, So the men of war, like tongue-in-cheek type phrase, because they weren't men of war. They had not gone into battle as God had commanded them. They should have been men of war, but they were cowards instead. Verse 15, for indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. So this little section is actually mentioned in the book of Jude, Jude um, verse 5. It's a warning against rejecting authority and to obedience. Um, They perish because of their disobedience and their unbelief. Sin is a serious offense to God. It's a serious offense. So verse 16, so as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass or contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. So this is actually the second incestuous son of Lot. Also, you'll read in um, Genesis chapter 19. It's also um, land that had been allotted to Lot's descendants. And so it's not going to be given to the children of Israel. So um, they're not to contend with them. Let them be. All right, we're going to skip over 
to verse 24, or down to verse 24 in chapter 2. So Moses says, or God says, rise up, set out on your journey. So get up, get up, get ready. Set out on your journey and go over the valley of Arnon. Behold, or look, I have given into your hand Sion, the Amorite king, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So the Valley of Arnon is actually um, sits between the land of Moab and the land of the Amorites. And um, again, the Amorites are those people group that back in um, 127 that the people had said God had hated them and he was going to give them over to the hand of the Amorites. Well, here God says, I'm giving the Amorite king and his land to you. And not only that, but people are going to hear and they're going to be afraid of you. So You know, in the beginning, they were so afraid of the people, but God's going to put the fear of the Israelites on all of them. So that's a change, right? Um, Who was going to hear? Who do you think heard the reports? You think about the Canaanites? Remember the story of when when, um, Joshua sent two spies into the city of Jericho? Two spies, they ended up in in the home of Rahab. And Rahab said, oh, we have heard about you guys. And we have heard about your God and what he has done. And let me tell you, the city is just terrified. They're terrified. So the report had indeed spread. And people were trembling. And they were in great anguish because of the people of Israel and this God who was their God. So begin to take possession. They're going to to begin to taste the promise of the land that that was promised to them so many years ago. So crossing the brook uh, Zered marks the end of the rebellious generation. Okay, but crossing the Arnon marks the beginning of Israel taking possession. Okay, so let's uh, move into verse 26. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sion, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving to us. So words of peace. So it really does show that there's peaceful intent here on the part of the Israelites. And it's in two ways. We see it in two ways. First of all, you know, he's saying about, you know, we did this with Edom and we did this with Moab and there was no war. There wasn't any war. So that's the first thing. And the Amorite territory was not their main objective. God had actually given them the land of the Canaanites, which was on the other side of the Jordan River. So this is on the east side of the Jordan River. It wasn't their main objective. However, we know that God 
had given him into their hand. So it's kind of puzzling, isn't it, how one could send a message of peace to a people who are going to be overthrown and destroyed? Well, the words of peace here actually represent a conventional diplomatic opening, which implies the possibility of war. In Deuteronomy 20, which we'll study, like after Christmas, <laughs> um, we see the rules of war. And this is actually laid out there in verses 10 to like 18. They are presenting a challenge to Sion to submit to Israel's and Yahweh's terms, though Moses knows that he will not. He will not. And as um, events turn out, the Amorite territory does indeed become Israelite land, but the substance of the covenant promise lay beyond the Jordan. All right, let's pick up in verse 30. But Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. So he wasn't willing. Sion wasn't willing. Um, fear, confidence in his own military power and his own strength. God had hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate. We know that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh uh, through those ten plagues. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God also hardened his heart. So um, these comments um, just, it actually is, is reflecting um, Hebrew, the Hebrew theology of history. Whew, that was a tongue twister there. The Hebrew theology of history, how they view um, God is the Lord of history. And um, yeah, so God had hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. Verse 31. And the Lord said to me, behold, look, I have begun to give Sion and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sion came out against us, he and all his people to battle at Jahaz. In Numbers 21, it actually says that Sion attacked Israel. Verse 33, and the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. I'm going to stop there. So victory was assured at the start. It was assured at the start. But victory here wasn't miraculous. It wasn't an act of God alone. The people had to enter the battle. They had to fight. Uh, so God, in his plan, promising victory, they're walking out in faith. He gives them success. He gives them the victory that he promised. So we captured all these cities and devoted every city, men, women, and children, left to destruction, left no survivors. Those are hard words. Those are hard words. In our context, like we don't want to think that that actually happened. We don't want to think that God actually told them to do this. But we have to keep it in context, and we have to study. This is why we interpret Scripture with Scripture. Back in Genesis chapter 15, when God is once again making, he's actually cutting covenant with Abram, and he tell Abraham, <laughs> he actually tells him, 
your descendants are going to end up in a land that doesn't belong to them. For 400 years they're going to be there, and they're going to be enslaved there. And then he'll bring them out. But the reason for that 400 years was because the sin of the Amorites was not yet complete. The sin of the Amorites was not yet complete. He was still giving them, from that point on in Abraham's life, 400 years plus a substantial window of time to repent before imposing judgment on them. Judgment will come to those who reject God. He had given them time. He had 400 plus years. That's a long time to have mercy and grace to, to come to. And they had heard. They had heard the stories just like Rahab did. They had heard. So the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. This was God's judgment being meted out on them. All right. We have to keep that in, in context. All right, verse 35. Only the livestock we took a spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. And from Aror, which is on this edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley, as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. Not a city too high for us. Even though they had been fortified up to the heavens, there was not a city when God is on their side, that was too high for us. Now, those, uh, those are bound uh, border uh, names. Aror, I'm losing my words here. Aror, which is it's actually the southernmost border of this territory. And Gilead was the northernmost uh, border um, in that area on the trans, this is the Transjordan, um, that they conquered at this time. So then it says that the Lord our God gave all into our hands. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near, that is to all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us. So even in this they obeyed because they didn't exceed their orders or grasp for more territory. Since they were on a roll, you know, let's get some more. No, they um, did not touch what God had forbidden them. All right, so then chapter 3 opens, and following the defeat of Sion, the people can now see that the Lord's promise is good and that they can trust him, and it gives them courage. So I'm going to summarize this, but basically they turn and they go up even further north to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them there, he and all his people, to battle. So he was the aggressor. And the same thing, uh, God had said, do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people in his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sion. So the same thing happens here. There is um, victory is already granted from the start. It's a done deal, in other words. And they have to act down in faith. The, um, the king, the, and, and Bashan is also an Amorite country, so he's an Amorite king. Um, will also be under that same judgment. And the same thing happened. God gave him into their hand, gave him success. But the success was the Lord's doing. And, and we read that through um, the text that this is written to make sure that we understand that they understand this was God that did this. 
um, and they took all their cities. There were like 60 cities, and there were cities with high walls and gates and bars, as well as some unwalled villages too. And they did devote everything to destruction, as um, would be stated in the rules of war and uh, from Deuteronomy 20. So verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8, it's really a summary statement. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. So this shows the extent of their victory, and that is like 140 miles. That's a pretty good territory, right? Um, And then all the cities are are listed there. Now I want to pick up in verse 11. This is an interesting side note, really, because it's in parentheses. So it's a parenthetical note. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. So that was the giants. So he's the only one who was left of those giants. And behold, his bed was a bed of iron. And the thing was 13 and a half by 6 feet. That guy was a big guy. He was a giant. He was from the, the giant race of people. Why the people would have been so afraid, that's big. Um, the bed he slept in, 13 and a half by 6 feet. Um, but with his death, the giant race is now gone. He was the last one. So um, and there's a section that follows there, verse 12 up to 17, uh, where they went in and they took possession of the land. And Moses is talking about how he gave sections of the territories to the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Um, and you can read the details in there. Um, in your homework, there was a little map that you could color in uh, with colored pencils or a marker or something, the, the three territories that were on the east side of the Jordan. So you could see those three tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So we're going to pick up in verse 18 of chapter 3. Before I go there, Numbers 32 actually has uh, this story as well. Um, these tribes did indeed have a large number of livestock. And they had requested of Moses to please let us settle here in this land. Um, we, you know, we were a big crowd. We had all these cattle and, you know, and Moses was hesitant at first. He thought because, you know, those other tribes, they had helped defeat this territory. Now, should they settle here and not go over and help the other tribes defeat their territory? So they had, they had to promise, actually, that they would commit to go over and fight um, to help their brothers take their territory as well. Okay, so this is explained in verse, starting in verse 18. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel, Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock. I know you have much livestock. They shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you. And they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. So that conquest took seven years. That's a long time to leave your wives, your little one, and your livestock behind. But they did. They did. Uh, And then each of you may return to the possession that I have given you. And in the end of the book of Joshua, we actually read that they did, they were able then to go home after the conquest was finished. And verse 21, 
And I commanded Joshua, this is going to be their new leader, and I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. So he reminds Joshua of what God has done and that he saw it with his own eyes so that he can trust that God will do the same because he's promised he will do the same when they cross over the Jordan to go into the promised land. All right, now we're going to go into kind of a different section here. Verse 23 is actually Moses talking about how he pleaded with God. Verse 23, and I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. You have only begun. I have only just begun to see the marvelous works that you have done and that you will do. This prayer really is deeply personal. And he knows that this request that he's going to ask, this is bold. Yet he asks humbly. He says, you have begun to show your servant. He doesn't come with an arrogant, I deserve this type attitude. He comes humbly. But he, he wants this. And I don't blame him. I don't blame him. All right. Um, For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? What God is there? Back in Exodus chapter 15 in the Song of Moses, which he wrote after they came through the Red Sea, he wrote these words. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, terrible in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And of course, that's a rhetorical question, and it's expressed in the form of praise. He's praising God. There is no other God like Yahweh. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country, and Lebanon. Please. Um, He wanted to go in. He had been leading these people like for 40 years through um, since... They left Egypt, and here it is. He's realizing, yeah, I can't go. And yet they've been through these two battles, and he's seen what God's hand can do. And you can just imagine what he's thinking God will do. What's it going to look like? I want to go over and see. He wanted to go in. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. A decision had already been made. There is a sense in which Moses has lost his primary focus. He wants to see that land. I mean, we all want him to see the land, right? After reading and studying this, he wanted to see that land. It's been a consuming passion for so many years of his life. But his vision slipped from the Lord of the promise to the promise itself. It was the Lord himself that was to remain the true promise and the vision of Moses. And you know, we do this too, don't we, today? We want the gifts 
rather than the giver, right? We do. We do the same thing. But the Lord himself was to remain that true promise and vision of Moses. So what did God say to him? It's the second half of verse 26. Um, He would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. You know, sometimes there's just a time to stop asking. You know, the, the Apostle Paul in um, 2 Corinthians, it had a thorn in the flesh. And scripture tells us that he asked God three times to remove that thorn. And God kept saying no. But God did say, but my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. It was time for Paul to stop asking. It's time for Moses to stop asking and to, to be okay with the decision that God has made because he's God. Um, no further discussion is required. But because of grace, God did let him see. God does let him see. Verse 27, go up to the top of Pisgah, which is also uh, known as Mount Nebo, and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. So grace is going to let him see it. He will see it, but he will not go in it. Verse 28, but charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Um, Beth Peor, that valley opposite Beth Peor, is actually the place where Moses is going to be buried, which we will we'll study about in um, Deuteronomy chapter 34. And and in that text also we'll see that he does go up and he sees, he views the land. Um, But he's to encourage Joshua, charge Joshua. Remember what you have seen and where you shall go because you're following the one true God, the, the one with the mighty hand and the outstretched arm. So that's the end of our text. So, but what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this Old Testament book? (laughs) Well, we've seen a contrast developing. I hope you could see it. Uh, Previously, the people were fearful, rebellious, and God had actually removed his presence from them. And then we saw at the end of today's lesson that the fear and the dread of the Israelites was put on all the other nations. And they were obedient, and God was with them, and he did give the victory. But you might say... Well, I'm not fighting any battles. I'm not in the service. Oh, but you are. You are, and I am. We are constantly fighting the pull of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are fighting a a battle, ladies, all the time, constantly. And we need to fight those battles in the strength of our Lord and not by strapping on our own weapons, not by going through the, um, the self-help books and the things that our culture would tell us will give us success. No, we need to have confidence in the Lord and not in our own strength, not in our own flesh. We are to trust God's word and his promises that he will give us victory, and he will. He will give us victory over our sin and, 
and these battles that we constantly fight with ourselves. Last week, Cherie talked about walking by faith. To move forward, not focusing on what they could see with their eyes, but to see with the eyes of faith what God was doing beyond their circumstances. And we need to practice that too. Life is hard. Life gets tough. It's difficult. But we need to see, standing on the promises that God has given to us in his word, that we can fight in his strength and that he is transforming us into the image of Christ. There's Caleb. We saw Caleb wholly followed the Lord. He actually saw the promise fulfilled in the book of Joshua. He goes in, inherits land for himself and his family. He had saturated himself with God. He filled himself fully to the Lord. And we need to do that. We need to do that. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now that's not saying that if you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you just whatever you're desiring. What it's saying, though, is that if you delight yourself in the Lord, he becomes your desire. And he will give you himself when you delight yourself in him. He will give you himself, more of himself. That was Caleb. We need to immerse ourselves in him. And then there's Joshua. In chapter 1, verse 38, we read that Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Joshua is a type of Christ. A type is actually a symbol of something future and distant. The English spelling of the Hebrew name Yeshua is Joshua. But when translated from Hebrew into Greek, the original language of the New Testament, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus, and in English, Jesus becomes Jesus. So thus, Yeshua, correspondingly Joshua and Jesus, mean Yahweh saves, or the Lord is salvation. It is significant that God says that Joshua, Yeshua, will cause Israel to inherit the land, the promise. Um, It is significant in more than one way because Moses had been their leader. That was the only leader that they had known. And it's very easy for us to get caught up in following a leader. But God doesn't want them to follow a leader. He wants them to follow him. So he took Moses, and he's going to take him to heaven. He's not going to cross over into the Jordan, across the Jordan into the land. And he's bringing in Joshua, who will lead, whose name means the Lord is salvation. He wants them to remain dependent on himself. And we need to remember that too. We need to remember that we don't follow a a leader. We don't follow a preacher. We don't follow a denomination or a certain church or an organization. We as believers follow alone after Christ or Christ alone is what I should say. Follow after Christ alone. Um, And what is our promise? Our promise is salvation, eternal life, eternal life. In John 20, verse 31, it says, But these things are written 
This is the book that had the signs and the wonders that Jesus did. All these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, back in Exodus chapter 34, there's a story where God is going to pass before Moses. And as he passed before him, he proclaimed, God proclaimed about himself these words. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Judgment will come to those who do not turn in repentance to God and seek his mercy. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, 400 plus years for the Amorite people. And then their judgment came. Same for us. Judgment will come. But to those who put their trust in Christ, the judgment that we deserved was placed on Christ. In my place condemned, he stood. So that act of saving grace Jesus caused me to inherit salvation. And if you've put your faith in Christ, he has caused you to inherit that salvation. He did that. We didn't do that. God did that. So why study Deuteronomy? Right? Why study Deuteronomy? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we find these words written. Now, these things happen to them as an example But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is written down for our instruction, which means we need to learn Right? We need to learn this. We need to learn to take heed lest we fall. We need to learn that there's no temptation that he brings our way, that he doesn't also make a way of escape so that we don't have to fall into that temptation. Standing on the promises that he has in his word. So to close, I want to actually read words from that hymn, Standing on the Promises. Standing on the promises that cannot fail when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail. Kind of sounds like that first generation, huh? By the living word of God, I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises of Christ the Lord, bound to him eternally by love's strong cord overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword, standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises, I cannot fall, listening every moment to the Spirit's call, resting in my Savior as my all in all, standing on the promises of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us how to stand on your promises. 
We recognize that we easily place our confidence where it doesn't belong. We trust in our own selves and in our abilities. We trust in things that you've provided to us. We trust in other people. We trust in the word from our culture. Oh, forgive us, Lord, for not trusting in you, for not leaning on your everlasting arm. Because even though we didn't live during this time when Moses was preaching to these people, we also can see with eyes of faith how you have worked in our own lives. We can see where you've brought us from, and we can trust that you will bring us all the way because you are faithful. And you who began a good work in each of us will bring it to completion. So, Lord, I pray you will cement the truths of your word into each of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.